Welcome back to part two of our second podcast exploring the new security of payment legislation in Western Australia, the new Building and Construction Industry Security of Payment Act 2021, which we refer to as the SOPA. I am Kate Bauer and I'm a specialist in construction and infrastructure disputes and a senior associate in the disputes team in Perth. And I am Laura Bolt, a specialist in drafting and negotiating construction and infrastructure contracts and a senior associate in the project's energy and infrastructure team in Perth. So in part one of this episode, our deep dive into notice-based time bars under SOPA, we talked about what are notice-based time bars, why are they important, the reason for legislative intervention and what that legislation says. So what are we going to talk about today, Kate? Thanks, Laura. After delving into the background to the provisions on notice-based time bars in SOPA in part one of our second podcast, this time we want to have a practical discussion on the application of time bars. We want to focus on three topics. First, plunging a bit deeper into why time bars are important. Second, building upon insights from the Murray and Fiocco reports in relation to the view that the requirements for submitting extension of time claims are too onerous. We want to get some practical insight and industry guidance in crafting critical path claims. And third, going back to first principles and considering how principals and head contractors should approach the drafting of time bars, noting some of the issues our experts will talk about in relation to the steps required to put a claim together and ultimately, how we as an industry can do better in terms of making extension of time claims, responding to claims, and even the requirements for a claim to make sure it works for both parties. Who is joining us today, Laura? So to assist us with those aims, we're joined today by two distinguished guests who are both leading delay experts. We're joined by Dominic Halloran, a principal at Heinz, Blunden and Melbourne. Dominic has over two decades of experience in the delivery of infrastructure projects in Australia and overseas, and her insights have been pivotal in a variety of projects where she's provided expert evidence, advice and experts reports in relation to delay and delay costs, contributing to arbitration and litigation proceedings. And also joining us is McCool Sol, Managing Director of Asia Pacific at Driver Tret in Perth. McCool's reputation as a delay expert is fortified by a trailblazing background in project controls and planning, where he's been instrumental in navigating numerous intricate delay and disruption claims. So Dominic and McCool, thank you for joining us today. Welcome also, Dominic and McCool. And as we discussed in part one, a time bar is a clause which requires a party to exercise a contractual right, such as that of an extension of time, within a certain time and in a certain way for example, by giving a notice containing specific information. As you know, it is not uncommon in bespoke contracts for there to be a clause which says, if a contractor doesn't put in a claim for an extension of time within, say, 20 business days of becoming aware of the event giving rise to the delay, it is time barred and therefore cannot make a claim. And as we mentioned in part one, some stakeholders to the Murray report and the Fiocca report thought that time bars were being misused simply to avoid claims for extensions of time and associated delay costs. And we're interested in your position as a delay or programming expert to hear your insights on the underlying rationale behind time bars and why it is important that a contractor or subcontractor provide timely notice. We'll start with you, Dominique. Thanks, Kate. Well, there's three main reasons why um, 
time bars are put into contracts, in my view. I think the first the first one is that it enables the owner to take action if they're the cause of the delay or if one of their agents is the cause of the delay. So it may be that um, a contractor needs access or some drawings or an approval that the client needs to provide. So that is the first reason. The second reason is it gives the owner an opportunity to start making its own records so that they're in a good position to respond to the claim. And the third reason is it gives the owner the opportunity to try and reduce the effect of the delay by through things like um, directing the contract to resequence or by removing scope or asking the contractor to change its method. So they're the three reasons that I think um, time bars are, are put into contracts. And that is consistent with the case law and commentary, and thank you, Dominique, that the purpose is to provide a principal or head contractor with timely notice to allow the claim to be investigated in real time and using contemporaneous project documentation. And it gives the principal the opportunity to make decisions, such as withdraw a variation if it will have a negative effect on, say, the project schedule. Yeah, that's right. And shifting our perspective slightly, I'm curious to explore an alternative viewpoint. If a contractor or a subcontractor does not provide the requisite notice, what potential consequences and outcomes might unfold? And we'll start with you, McCool. Our listeners will be keen to hear some war stories or real life examples of issues arising in such situations. And I know in some of our earlier discussions, you mentioned a great example about ship delay. Thanks, Laura. Um, absolutely. Uh, obviously, with experience, we've seen uh, a lot of uh, different projects and different projects have circumstances where you think and look back, geez, I wish they followed the time notifications. And as you've uh, introduced, there was a project which was a uh, Western Australian resources project up in the Pilbara. Um, it had structural steel fabricated offshore in a modular format, which again is very common scenario. A lot of uh, previous and current live projects still follow that model. So it's in this instance, the contractor was responsible for receipt of principal supply design via the principal's design consultant and to then progress shop detailing, fabrication, shipping and construction commissioning on site. So the project was one of those fast track jobs where everything is happening in parallel. You know, modules are arriving on site for some areas whilst design is still progressing in other areas. So it's not the conventional we can have everything closed off and move on between the phases. Uh, through good programming on that job, it was very well known which modules were critical and those critical modules must go on to restrictive um, shipments because obviously with shipping you have a schedule and if you miss the shipment, it, uh, you can't really necessarily delay the ship back. It has to go, it has to go. Um, so there was an instance where a very late design input came in that compromised the ability for the critical module to be completed on time for the next shipment. The contractor, however, did not stick with time uh, restrictions. They did not raise the notification of delay um, within their prescribed time. They just assumed that they had to undertake the reworks to conform with the new design, and they removed the module from the upcoming shipment packing list and pushed it back to the next ship, um, which was actually three weeks later. The principal was informed, but they were only informed um, significantly later when the action was um, too late and the ship was being loaded. Um, the principal immediately notified the contractor that if you had told me that this was going to cause critical delay, I would have simply allowed the module to be delivered as previously fabricated and I would give you a site instruction to make amendments on site. 
whilst I appreciate the cost of installation on site is higher than off site, which would have informed your um, your decision. The reality is that it wouldn't have caused three weeks critical delay and potentially significantly higher prolongation costs. In this situation, days delay notification can cause weeks delay to critical path. Thanks, McCall. That's a really interesting um, case study and example. And going back to first principles, it's important to remember that the principal engages the contractor to deliver a project for the principal. So if a contractor wishes to change the scope of works, for example, the principal needs to have a veto right or the opportunity to, to suggest an alternative technical solution or even just to not have the contractor carry out the work. Or it could be the principal has to have the project finished by a specific date as there are back-to-back -back contracting arrangements in place. So there are important reasons why a contractor submitting a timely notice is important. But there are two sides to every story. Obviously, the onus is on a contractor to submit a timely notice. But what does the principal need to do? And why is this important, Dominique? Well, I, it sounds pretty straightforward, but the principal needs to actually assess the claim. And we see often in our industry where um, a principal or a superintendent will respond back to a contractor with some sort of vague catch-all responses about non-compliance with the clause or um, that the works weren't shown to be on the critical path and I, I think that what what a principal or a uh, superintendent needs to do is to be specific about the reasons for accepting the claim or rejecting the claim or why the claim can't be assessed and what and provide also the specifics around what is needed from the contractor in order for the principal to be able to actually assess the claim. Otherwise, it means that the contractor is continually chasing their tail, submitting claims, thinking that they've provided enough information, and then they get another response back from the principal saying that more information is needed. I, and so actually assessing a claim one way or the other means that the contractor has some certainty and can move forward. Yep, that's really helpful. Thanks, Dominique. And we've talked about how one of the most important reasons for time bars is to allow for timely investigation of a claim, whether that's an extension of time claim or a variation claim, for example. And I expect we've all encountered projects where claims are piled up until after the project is finished. However, it definitely works both ways. Can you recall an instance where an extension of time claim or variation claim wasn't responded to until very late or after the works had happened? And I'm intrigued to hear about what the consequences were from, from such a delay. Sure. Um, to be honest with you, unfortunately, it's becoming very common to not get timely responses from the principal, which does cause a lot of, I guess, morale issues as well, the culture issues and, you know, the certainty of what you're trying to achieve really gets compromised. I mean, uh, example is uh, there was an infrastructure project that I was working on um, over the past few years, and it started off as planned on a ward, as it always does. But shortly after, they experienced its very first delay pertaining to, let's call it issue number one. Very straightforward issue, um, very easy to assess, but it didn't get assessed. The contractor did everything right, mind you. They provided timely notice, they then provided a timely EOT claim, ticked all the boxes, but the principal just didn't respond. And, you know, 
we use the term kick the can down the road. They definitely kick the can down the road by just saying, you know, um, we need some more information, as Dominique alluded to earlier. Uh, as it commonly happens on projects, further issues arose, you know, two to four. Um, and now it's starting to get a little convoluted. It's not so simple anymore because you're having overlapping delays now which haven't been assessed. So the issues are never independent and they have to be considered along with the first issue to get a complete picture. So you're now coming to a situation where you're building claims on unapproved starting positions. I mean, issue number one was an approved baseline. Issue number two is on an unapproved delay analysis from issue one and so on and so forth. That causes more complexity sorry, in uh, assessment as you're, until you approve one, you can't really assess two, three, and four really. Um, you know, it got to a point where we're up to issue number nine now, which is months later. And the contractor was then informed that, you know, whilst the delays are being evaluated, can we start looking at acceleration, which makes it even more complicated. So all the focus from the limited teams goes into that. And then it comes to the point where the acceleration claims and delay claims, and, you know, if you add disruption in as well, because some of the claims start introducing disruption, it gets so complex um, that it ultimately goes to dispute, which you expect would happen because no one can agree on anything anymore. Um, they fear agreeing issue number one now because they know what the impacts would be on two, three, four, and so on. So the delay will occur, you know, uh, when, a de when a delay occurs, you know, just have it submitted in a timely manner, have it assessed in a timely manner, execute a contract variation, then move on. So it does cause a massive, massive problem if there isn't a timely response back. And uh, yeah, the end outcome for me, the consequences are that if you don't do that, the job goes into dispute. Thanks, Bakul. That's definitely consistent with what we've seen. I like the description of kicking the can down the road. We definitely see that quite a lot and see the problems that it causes on both sides. Um, that brings us to section two, which is looking at why time bars are potentially being misused or potentially not working as originally intended. We want to talk about the notice required for, say, an extension of time claim itself and whether the requirements we're seeing are indeed far too onerous, as stakeholders advised in both the Murray and the Fiocco reports. That's right. And thanks, Laura. There has also been a lot of discussion about time periods for assessing claims, namely extension of time claims being too short and unreasonable. Delay analysis always seems like a slight dark art to lawyers and non-planners. Dominique, what steps are generally involved in preparing a claim? Well, I think whenever I'm working on a claim, the thing I always have, and it sounds simple to state, but the thing that needs to be in front of mind is what were we planning to do? And because of this delay, how do we have to do it now? So the analysts with the project team will put together a chronology of events and say, for example, there's a ground conditions are discovered that mean that a ground, that a ground slab needs to be redesigned and it's a construct only contract. So let's say the contractor has found um, these latent conditions, has to then notify the principal. The principal has to have drawings redone of the ground slab. Those drawings have to be reviewed and approved and then given to the contractor and um, the works continue on. So let's say there's a, a month's delay there. There's a few key points along in that timeline of finding the latent condition, getting the design drawings redone, getting them to the contractor and starting the, gra the ground slabs, the, the work that was on. Let's, let's assume that the actual ground slab didn't change or the in 
amount of time taken to do this lab didn't change. So those sort of four or five key things are put into a chronology. The events are then put into a delay uh, a delay analysis where you take the baseline program, adjust the date for commencement of that of the ground slab work by putting in the timeline of what has happened to take you to that point and uh, and it's written up and I and the point about it as you said Kate being a bit of a dark art the the real key yeah I think is writing it up quite succinctly to explain what has been done in the analysis how, how we plan to do the work what has happened and what the what the effect of the delay has is as through using the analysis. Great. So what you're saying is that a claim is not a standalone single document, rather it's a interconnected web of various components. And in order to prepare a claim, it's necessary to have a well-crafted program, a blueprint that maps out the program's journey, and it isn't static. So that program needs to be regularly updated at certain intervals to capture the project's evolution, if you like. Is that a fair statement? Oh, look, um, absolutely. I think we are considered to be magicians with dark arts, but the reality is that we are just ultimately trying to model time. Programs are models that just represent the best understanding of time information at the time it's developed. So the contract program is, you know, the, it's the baseline where all contractual requirements are met. Base scope is generally covered. All the milestones are being achieved within the required contractual dates. The criticalities of all activities are known. It's clear what the critical path is and there's no unknown delays and the like. So it, as you mentioned, it is a static document, but we've all experienced that as the project unfolds, this is not the case. Every week something happens. So the base program becomes redundant pretty much as soon as the job starts. You know, and That's where you need to maintain the contemporaneous programming. And those are commonly referred to as update programs. And the point of that is to better understand your immediate works. You know, if you're running lookaheads on a weekly basis, that should be on the latest updated program, not on the baseline, because it reflects actual progress and revisory forecasts, including mitigations and accelerations and anything else that's happened over the course of the week. So quite importantly, though, this does formalize the contemporaneous thinking at the time. So programs are always a communication tool for, for the project. And as information comes to light, as changes happen, the program is the one that's meant to model and capture what the contemporaneous thinking is at the time, which is very reliable information to consider when undertaking delay analysis methodologies, which are you know well respected. So um, it's very important to maintain those. But at the same time, beyond the updates, when there's a material shift in the nature or character of the program, the program should be re-baselined to reset the plan progress expectations against which the contractor's performance is to be measured. One thing that's always caused issues I've seen on live projects is when everyone refers back to the original Rev Zero plan and says, well, you're running behind it. You don't have enough people compared to it. You don't have enough progress compared to it. Well, you should really compare to an impacted program, you know, compared to one that includes variations, because that's how you can fairly judge um, the contractor's performance. But um, I'll also just highlight that uh, updating programs can feel very onerous. But the reality is that if you build a baseline well enough, which is well linked to other um, technical information, such as your QMRs and other reports which engineers prepare and commercial notice and delay registers and so on and so forth. And if you set up a good enough workflow, which you know is a process to update the program, 
I honestly advocate that updating a program should only be a day's work, you know, and the rest of the time the planner should be spending focusing on program optimization, delay claim preparation, or any other support they can add as part of being a functional expert. So a lot of the times uh, the issue is as well that uh, people just think it's too onerous, it's too hard, and um, because of that, they don't maintain the updates properly, and then because of that, they don't get used. Those are some really great insights. Thank you, McCool. And picking up on what you were saying about modelling and capturing contemporaneous thinking, I suppose that in addition to having a regularly updated program, it's also important to have good records, namely contemporaneous records such as site diaries, photographs and monthly reports as a few examples. Do you agree, Dominique? I do, Kate, and I am aware we often sound like broken records when we're asking for all the all the um, contemporaneous records, but it, there's usually um, we're usually involved some three, four, five years after a project is finished and the project team has moved on often and the records are really all we have. Uh, so if a, if a project also, if it goes over many years, a consistent set of records can be sort of invaluable to determine what has happened during the course of the works. And we also use those records to validate the as-built program or to identify areas where the program's lacking in detail. And yeah, I've been involved in many projects where if the records are good and kept consistently and meaningful, um, not just done as a bit of a tick box, tick box exercise, it just makes our lives so much easier. It puts us in a better position to either prepare an analysis or respond to an analysis in a, in a mean, meaningful way because it means that you're able to point to a record that will support your claim or assist in denying a claim. So, yes, the records are very important. Thanks, Dominic. And we've touched on this slightly already, but as a front-end lawyer, I'm always interested to understand how often you think, you know, assuming we've got a sophisticated contractor, that a program should be updated under contract and why we often find that that just doesn't occur. McCool, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, with programs, there are models, right, as I, as I mentioned, and it's really dependent on the scope that you're trying to model. When you're looking at, for example, shutdowns, the interval should be at the end of each work shift. Uh, normal construction jobs, a weekly interval is quite adequate and preferred generally in industry, which is quite sensible. Um, during periods such as long lead procurement phase, you know, these intervals can be monthly. And sometimes when you have a very simple project with no change, the baseline and as-built alone are sufficient. So I think I've seen many contractors in the past try to set up a process and protocol, which they think is the gold standard and implemented on every project. And it's been quite pointless at times. You know, there's no point of putting the standards of project controls on a 5 million project, which you would put on a 500 million project, you know. So there's no point of making a Rolls Royce if all you need is a Toyota, you know. So um, it does come down to being sensible, given the scope of work you're trying to model. Um, but irrespective, you know, as you scale up in size, my view still remains that programs shouldn't take longer than one day to update. Even if there's many stakeholders, you know, uh, have had experience maintaining a principles program for a leading oil and gas um, project, had nine different sources of information. But when you set it up properly, when you get everyone aligned, it only takes a day to incorporate all the updates and publish the associated reporting. 
Now, the most, you know, from my experience, uh, from what I've seen, there's sort of three main causes why programs generally aren't maintained well. It actually starts with leadership behaviors. And I've seen some organizations have got quite poor leadership behaviors towards programming, where the project manager may feel that uh, the program is just a reporting hindrance rather than a powerful support tool. So unless your leadership actually believes in what you're trying to do with the program and you know instills across all the superintendents and supervisors and project engineers that need to play their part in the streamlined process of getting inputs in, um, it fails. Uh, so I think leadership behavior is very important. You know, it's a non-technical thing, but it's it's very very important to me that you get everyone signed up to the culture of doing project controls. Um, the second one would probably be that uh, sometimes just people don't allow budget for having the right uh, resourcing to do the needful. You know, sometimes on smaller projects, especially people when they prepare their budget and their estimate, they think that they would just need to have a planner to prepare a baseline and then allow a few hours for future potential works. And that's well short of what is needed on. to maintain control on the job. You know, you do need to generally have enough planning capacity built into the estimate to be able to maintain the program. And I guess the third one is um, sometimes just the resources being deployed, unfortunately, just don't have the right skills or experience to deliver expectations. And that's because, you know, uh, genuinely speaking, in Australia, we all know that we're quite constrained with our number of resources, and it's very difficult. I mean, the last few years, finding a good planner has been very hard work for everyone. You know? Those are really interesting insights. Thank you, McCool. And picking up on your comments as to expertise and planning resources, I suppose that in a lot of contracts that we see, a contractor usually warrants to a principal that it has the resources in place including personnel, to carry out both the works and the project. But then we read in the Murray and Fiocco reports that a lot of stakeholders are saying they don't have the ability to both carry out the work and also put in claims, especially where the requirements are onerous or the timeframes are tight. And it seems then that if a contractor lacks the expertise of a forensic planner, then it's going to take a fair amount of time to put in an EOT claim. And the absence of the requisite experience could lead to a disjointed process and real challenges in identifying critical path deviations and quantifying their impact. It's going to be even harder if a contractor hasn't regularly updated its program each month or hasn't kept those contemporaneous records that have just been mentioned. How does that impact putting together a critical path analysis for the purposes of, of an extension of time claim? And I imagine it's akin to missing pieces of a puzzle. Dominique, what are your thoughts on that? Yep, that's that's right, Laura. It, when when the programs haven't been properly updated or, or we don't have records, usually fall back to preparing an as-built program and to and to the extent that you can. Um, so it's always it's done after the fact. And as-built programs um, they can be quite more quite costly to prepare. So the contractor's trying to save money by not having a programmer on board. Um, throughout the throughout the project, they often end up having to pay a, a forensic um, scheduler to put, put together an, an as-built program if they want to do an analysis. Um, an as-built program and putting together an as-built critical path also um, can be more open to attack as it's more reliant on the assumptions made by the analyst that um, in preparing the critical path and the claim. And it's more, it is just inherently more subjective if the records are not available to back, 
back up what the what the analyst is showing. So it it is it makes it a much a much tougher a, a much tougher task if those if those records and the contemporaneous as McCool touched on before the contemporaneous thinking of how we're planning to do the project aren't available. It it makes it a, a whole lot harder to put together a claim. Thanks, Dominique. And that's a really important point you raised about underestimating the importance of a forensic planner, whether in-house or as a consultant, as part of the contractor team, and ensuring both parties have adequately sized and skilled teams for making and responding to claims. These comments reinforce one of the points made by stakeholders in the Murray report. It is unfair to require a contractor to put together a claim which is quite onerous in a short time frame, while at the same time also progressing the works. And having talked about the skill sets and teams required to make and respond to claims, that brings us to the notice itself. So you've probably both seen a lot of notices and claims, the good, the bad, the ugly. What information do you think is absolutely necessary to receive to assess an extension of time claim? And do you see anything that is often asked for, but in actual fact is just not needed as part of that assessment? So um, similar to the programs, my view is that the detailed requirements for assessment will differ case by case. Again, you know, there's a myriad of considerations such as, you know, what is the contract mandate, uh, the scope of work that you're actually looking to assess, available information, what's the actual delay being considered. But from a general point of view and, you know, based generally on uh, industry guidance documents on best practice, you would want to receive at least, you know, good details on the delay to understand exactly what has happened. I mean, yes, we have to do a technical assessment, but you want to understand exactly what the delay is and how does it actually impact the project. And that should be backed by substantiation. You know, you should cover all the boxes. You should tick off that uh, it is a delay. You, there is entitlement. What are the pertinent clauses and how have they been addressed? And you know, from a contract point of view, how is this delay um, valid? But then uh, from a technical side of thing, it's more about how does the delay actually link to the relevant milestones? And it should be backed by a reliable delay analysis that is well narrated. I think that's something that people miss out on a lot. They, they put forward a, a delay analysis, but they don't actually explain what they've done. And that causes a lot of timely delays in assessment. It shouldn't only, you know, a simple example, someone might turn around and say, I have done a time slice windows analysis. But the reality is that there's umpteen number of ways you can do a time slice windows analysis. It's just a label. You should really go through and, you know, explain your choice of steps. And a gold standard submission should actually go a step further and explain that why this methodology was selected over other methodologies. You know, what made this one more reliable? If you can cover that in your submission, you're going to automatically wipe away a whole entire round of conversations that, oh, if I don't use this method, if I use another method, is that more better? Because it will give you a different outcome, you know, uh, going back to the dark arts thing we touched upon a bit earlier. So, you know, you should also do things such as proactively address how you've considered mitigation, how you considered, you know, if it's acceleration or recovery, how you've actually considered concurrency, which is very popular. There's a lot of contracts that say you need, you need to either address concurrency or it gets addressed in determination. So if you can proactively talk about it, explain how you've considered it, why you've certainly left bits out, why you've kept things in, it helps with explaining what you've submitted. Um, the other thing as well is everyone should provide supporting files in native format, so assessment can be uh, validated. Is it actually been implemented correctly? 
In terms of like uh, what's not needed, you know, I, I particularly dislike when principals give a blanket statement asking for further substantiation with nothing explicitly mentioned. And by doing that, it just adds an entire round of back and forth, which just takes a lot of time. Um, it's quite uh, wasted and the opportunity of resolution gets diminished. Thanks, Nicole. I think as a disputes lawyer, I think you make some really, really excellent points. I like what you say about explaining why a certain methodology was suggested over other methodologies. I think also, you know, talking about proactively raising um, issues around concurrency, um, providing supporting files in native format, and also driving for timely resolution. I think they are all excellent ideas. And that's right. I think such transparency will also assist in building trust and preventing misunderstandings or disputes about when actions need to be taken. And in terms of looking at what's the problem in the industry, is there anything else that you want to add, Dominique? Thanks, Kate. Uh, one other thing that comes to mind is um, you know, I've worked on many projects as a designer and project manager, and people will often be quite overly optimistic about how they'll be able to perform on a project. Um, I call it sometimes I call it wishful thinking. And you can see if a project is running behind due to an event or low productivity or some other thing that is consistently meaning that the project is running late, unless there's some sort of intervention, it um, the project will continue to to fall behind. And that this is when we see um, sort of a, a program sort of compressing up um, the back end of the project as as the as the um, progress isn't monthly progress isn't met, and then all of a sudden the contractor puts in a claim, the project the project completion date blows right out, and it's it's all a bit of a mess. And I think uh, the project teams need to really think about what is needed to if they want to get back on track, what are the important elements? What do they need to do? And that really understanding what the critical path is, where they need to concentrate their resources and efforts in order to get back on track um, is so important. I think also sort of adding on to that, having someone on the project who will challenge the project team to think about what the risks are, where they should be focusing their energy um, and, and what could go wrong on the project and cause delays also quite beneficial. Thanks, Dominic. And that takes us to the final section of our podcast on how we as an industry can be better. To recap some of the takeaways from our discussion so far, first, it's important to ensure a contractor has resources such as forensic planner to update a program regularly and prepare notices and claims. Second, it's important to ensure that a contractor has those resources available when negotiating the contract. And it's not just the A team completing the pitch, but then the B team actually completing the work. And third, from what we've heard, the question of how long it is reasonable to prepare a claim and put in a notice depends on a number of factors which will need to be negotiated between the specific parties. Kate, as a disputes lawyer, have you noted any additional takeaways? Thanks, Laura. And yes, I have. I think the first additional takeaway is the requirements for a notice. I think the critical question is to ask yourself, what are the minimum notice requirements? To use McCool's phrase, which I quite like, why are you asking for Rolls-Royce requirements if all you need is a Toyota? The second um, additional point is the requirement for having a regularly updated program is really important. 
I've seen so many disputes emanate from a situation where a program was never provided at the start of a project or just never updated. And I think thirdly, the example about missing the ship really resonated with me. There, the principal lost an opportunity to withdraw an instruction to, show, to ensure it met a shipping schedule because of a late notice by a contractor. So I suppose communication is really key. It's crucial to convey to a contractor the importance and consequences of failing to provide timely notice at the start of a project. So thinking about where we go from here, Laura, it sounds like there needs to be reform at both the bid stage and in the contract administration stage. Yeah, I think that's right. It strikes me that a principal should be interrogating performance and scrutinising resourcing of the programme management during the bid stage. And ideally, the team who negotiates the contract would also administer the contract, or at the very least, there'd be some sort of involvement. McCool and Dominic, do you agree? And is there anything else you consider the industry could do better? McCool, we'll start with you. Thanks, Laura. Look, I completely and entirely agree. I think um, the reality is when enough people look at the same issue, they come up with the same outcomes. I think the only other things I would really add on is records again. And this is a bit of a broken record, but <laughs> excuse the pun. But the reality is that sometimes people who are you know, not understanding the big picture would start dashboarding, they would start reporting, and they would just follow it through from the start to finish. But you need to be very intelligent and dynamic about what you're doing with your reporting. The reality is that if something becomes an issue and it requires focus, start building records on it. You know, it may not be part of your normal dashboard pack to focus on, let's say, switch from procurement. You know, it's a one procurement package, which is a one of, you know, 100. But if that thing is going to become critical path, improve your reporting on it. Add another section onto your weekly report specifically on it or the support. Bring it to light, raise awareness, because that's how you can actually fix the problem. So I think it needs to be dynamic. It can't be static. You have to focus on what needs to be reported and report on that rather than just creating a template at the outset of the job and populating it every week, because that's when it's quite useless and a waste of time. And um, the other thing I would say is, you know, I am, despite, despite being heavily involved with dispute resolution, I still do advocate significantly for dispute avoidance. And that comes from working on projects which have done well. The satisfaction from walking away on a project that finished ahead of time and under cost is immensely, you know, I can't even put it through words. Um, we did have a project like that in 2012 where we broke the record of the fastest construction build on a mining plant, first steel to construction verification. And it's very rewarding. And I feel like the culture's heavily changed nowadays, where rather than people trying to go into industry to make an impact, to break records, it's all about surviving through the contract. And it goes back to, you know, underestimating it, bidding something too aggressive, too optimistic and setting yourself up that you know you're going to be failing, so you try to make it up in claims. You know, it's a completely wrong culture. I think it will be fantastic for industry to try to go back to actually do something landmark, do something record-breaking, do something that will make you, you know, famous and popular, rather than just trying to survive from your day job. Thanks, McCool. And Dominic, what about you? Is there anything that you consider the industry could do to be better? Yes, Laura, I think that um, clients should have realistic timeframes for projects, especially in the, the current market where there's a lack of resources and supply chain issues. There's a, a lot of challenges for contractors to meet end dates. And if, if clients are coming in with a requirement for a project to be finished 
in a really aggressive time frame that's sort of they're setting themselves up for failure. And also on the client side, working towards defining scope better, um, especially in construct-only contracts. We're seeing many contracts where the owner thinks the design is sufficiently detailed, but there are issues with the design that result in RFIs and, and claims. So that's not necessarily talking about the, the time by element, but there's sort of how you set, set yourself up for project success. I think it, those two things are very important. Thank you both. I think they're excellent ideas. I really like the idea of sort of building records, um, making sure the scope is adequately defined, and also um, the concept of realistic timeframes. I think building on that idea of setting yourself up for success, I think it's key to add, it doesn't matter how good the process is, it doesn't work if the parties don't follow the process. We've had many disputes that have occurred in part because the contract simply hasn't been followed and it's been thrown in the bottom drawer. So that causes a lot of problems where, say, the EOT or variation procedure just don't get followed. Yeah, that's sadly very true. And the messaging to ensure that doesn't happen really needs to come from the top down. The most successful projects have in place great leadership driving that good performance. Absolutely. And that culture and mentality flows downstream. It does. Program updates are often seen as a hindrance. There needs to be a cultural shift right down to engineers and the construction team, et cetera, to recognise the importance of project management at every level. I agree. And expanding on a point mentioned earlier about records needing to be kept, it's important to keep a paper trail throughout the project, ensuring that if, for example, a required program update is not provided, this is followed up and preferably in writing. Absolutely right. And it's about understanding the use of the program updates and ensuring the time bar mechanism is not used as a sword. That's right, Laura. So we started our podcast on time bars by talking about first principles. And some of those first principles that we need to keep in mind at all times are first, a time bar is there for timely notification of claims to ensure a principal can investigate it in real time and with contemporaneous project records. Second, not providing timely notice can have real consequences for the execution of a project by a principal. And third, as you'll have heard today, program is key. There needs to be emphasis on ensuring the program complies with the contract and is regularly updated by forensic planners with the right skill set. If the early work is done and is done by those with the right skill set, it will help in mapping out the project's progress and any potential impacts of delay. And as a front-end lawyer, there needs to be better conversation at the negotiation stage concerning the substance and required timing of notices. No one wants to fall foul of Section 16 and have a time bar declared unfair. But equally, just because Section 16 exists doesn't mean time bars will automatically be, be declared unfair. So it's important to consider and negotiate them. That's right. And the final point I wanted to make is that you can't contract out of Section 16 the provision on time bars and SOPA. It might be tempting to put in a provision to the effect that this time bar is fair, but that alone may not have the desired effect. In any event, the changes to the SOPA on time bars have certainly made us pause and consider where the time bars are being misused and how we can be better. And Kate, those are some great points you make, and I certainly echo your sentiment around clients having discussions with us sooner rather than later about those changes. 
We've had some great insights from our experts today, and I can truly envisage a brighter future for the industry through collective improvement. And Dominique and McCool, your input has been invaluable. Thank you very much for joining us on today's podcast. You've certainly given us a lot to think about. Thanks, Laura and Kate. Thanks, Kate and Laura, and uh, thank you again for fighting the good fight.